This week, Farah Mavatuna from NetSparker will join us for a discussion on enterprise web application security, which is always fun. Very much looking forward uh, to our time together today, and you should as well. Then we're going to talk about the enterprise security news with Dr. Doug White, who has joined me in studio. We're going to talk about Red Hat OpenShift. Uh, Argus and Ericsson uh, collaborate to do some vehicle security. Uh, Grammatech, we'll talk about static analysis, Trustwave, Radware. Interesting things happening in security automation and orchestration. There's a product announcement and an acquisition. Was it an ac- Yes, it was an acquisition. Uh, we'll talk about another acquisition in the phishing space uh, and some CrowdStrike news. All that and more on this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Was, uh, the teleprompter now has artificial intelligence, Doug, and updates itself. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, uh, this week, and talk about them as it relates to enterprise security, you're going to do great. <laughs> We're gonna, we're gonna, I think that people think that you and I talk like every day at night, you know, yeah. it's like, hey, what are you doing? It's kind of a bit of an exhausting week. And I think that we noticed that a little bit in the uh, stories for this week as well. Stop attackers from domain credential theft and lateral movement with a 99% success rate by using artificial intelligence to control the attacker's perception of the environment. Javelin Networks is the world's first endpoint intrusion containment platform to protect domain networks. Javelin detects targeted attacks and breaches by obfuscating Active Directory, domain controllers, domain identities, domain credentials, and all domain resources. It only takes one compromised machine to jeopardize the entire organization. Don't be a victim. Visit javelin-networks.com and request a demo of AD Protect today. Are you worried about PCI compliance? Does your development team understand or care about security? Are you ready to face a breach of your customer's sensitive data? See the worst that can happen before it does. Black Hills Information Security can help you help management see the future. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a web application penetration test can mitigate the risk before you go live. Minerva Lab stops malware that traditional antivirus solutions cannot block. Minerva works with your existing anti-malware tools to stop evasive threats by deceiving them into a dormant state, dramatically increasing your rate of prevention. Minerva's solution does not require ongoing care and feeding and will not get in the way of business users. With Minerva, adversaries have to pick their poison, implement evasive tactics and get caught by Minerva, or don't employ evasion and get stopped by AV. To learn more and request a demo, visit minerva-labs.com today. Welcome, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly, episode 81. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, and this is, in fact, February 28th, 2018. I am here in G-Unit Studios with none other than Dr. Doug White, the Director of Cybersecurity for Roger Williams University and the illustrious host of Secure Digital Life, our program. Yes, our program on the network for those getting into the field of information security. And Doug is so smart and so illustrious that he appears and on sexy every uh, sexy too on every single show on the network except for we found out not on Stogie I know, Geeks I'm yet. not on Stogie Geeks, so I'm gonna have to be on Stogie Geeks and express my incredible lack of knowledge of cigars. You know, they're like Doug's just like I just like to smoke cigars. Yeah, they're like and we rolled up these old socks and it's yeah. like yeah, all right, man, I'm good, I'm good to go. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with that. So no, uh, welcome, Doug. Yeah, thank you for having me. As ever, it's always yes. exciting to be on Enterprise Security Weekly and talk about enterprise. You know what else is exciting? We have three conferences coming up that's uh, true the first i think it's the first one uh let's let's see if i can do these in in order i don't know when secure world expo is but let's talk about infosec world briefly doug because you'll be there at infosec world i'll be there at infosec yeah. world as well as some other security weekly folks march 19th through the 21st os 18-sw is your 15 percent off discount code for that it's in orlando florida Doug will primarily be doing the interviews. I will primarily be working the floor, talking to uh, vendors for content and, of course, sponsorship and, uh, well, our analyst yeah. work as well. So, so come by and, and win prizes and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. And talk so, to us. Uh, that's going to be fun. I'll, I'll report back on the, the vendors that I'm talking with on that show, uh, at that show and at Secure World Expo. 
where our listeners, that's in Boston, our listeners can get $100 off by using the code security weekly. That's March 14th through the 15th. Yep. So it's actually first. Uh, so we'll be there. I'll be there with Mark and Keith. And then Source Boston, uh, May 9th through the 10th, SW89AEE2. That's Alpha Echo Echo 2. Uh, to get a hundred dollar off discount, I will be speaking at Source Boston on Docker security uh, or insecurity, as it were. <laughs> I will be speaking at Infosec World. My talk title is uh, "All Good Things in Enterprise Security Are Free." Sometimes, <laughs> um, so uh, that's kind of interesting. I'll be talking about Security Onion, probably some Docker stuff, uh, some DNS stuff uh, that I'm continuing to work on. So make sure you check that out. Uh, I won't be speaking at Secure World Expo, but we'll be doing a video series. Uh, so that is our conference uh, circuit that we're that will be happening soon. I would like to now introduce Farah Mavatuna from NetSparker. Farah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's nice to be here again. So, uh, Farah, tell us uh, what's happening uh, at NetSparker recently, as you haven't been on the show in the while in a while. So, uh, fill us in on the latest happenings in uh, application security and all things NetSparker. Right. What we are doing, we have been, we have been focusing a lot of scanning in scale, right? You know, one of the biggest problems that I've mentioned before in the show, and I think it's quite obvious to anyone who is dealing with enterprise level, big organization security is, you know, we kind of know how to secure a couple of websites, maybe five, 10 websites, but when it comes to hundreds, thousands, that's a huge problem. So that's what we've been focusing in NetSparker. With NetSparker Cloud, scalable, but also actionable and uh, actually scalable to that works. That's what we are doing. So you can scale and scan 1,000 websites and you can still act on it like very next day almost, right? Start immediately getting results. And automation of the whole process, we built complete, you know, native SDLC integration. So, you know, you can hook it up to your CI and it will do the scans and all the scans will automatically will be assigned. So now your developer will make a commit and in let's say 30 minutes, they will receive a ticket from Jira and ticket will say, oh, you just introduced a cross-site scripting. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've been doing. And we've been focusing a lot of integration in enterprise, scaling thousands of websites. How do, how do you manage the results? How do you get the results? And with the proof-based scanning, now the results are actually, you know, you're not worried about being false positive. You immediately start automating them. And we are focusing on that building all that process and implementing it in these many enterprises and getting really great results at that. So the fact that we have this capability uh, to be able to scan thousands of websites and identify vulnerabilities accurately, why do we still see large organizations have data breaches that largely come from web application vulnerabilities? <laughs> the, the whole thing, to be honest, is relatively new. I mean, there are a couple of things. <clears throat> Sorry. So uh, first of all, we in NetSpark, we are pioneering the whole uh, proof-based scanning, meaning the results you are getting from your scan comes with a proof. So when you get a result, if it's a SQL injection, you actually get the database name in the report. So now you know it's real and it's not, it's not fake, it's not false positive. It cannot be false positive. So this is unique to us. And you don't see that in any other vendors. And it's very relatively new as well. And we should get into connection. I'm breaking up maybe a little bit. Yeah, it sounds like it's breaking up a little bit. Hopefully it uh, catches up with itself. As uh, I think uh, in preparation for this interview, you said you had a, a story about a real live hack and some of the web application issues that uh, led to that incident. Um, We've seen in like uh, multiple uh, real-world applications that you see that customer knows a vulnerability. It happens in one of their websites, so they know the vulnerability in general, but they only find the vulnerability when they scan thousands of websites, right? And what we have seen in, in customers' process, they come back to us and they say, look, I've got 1,000 websites, 3,000 websites. And I send reports to my developers every month with the vulnerabilities. But what happens is uh, they start speaking. So even though I sent them vulnerabilities, they're ignoring me. 
And the reason being because the results they are getting, uh, you know, half of them are false positive, or quarter of them are false positive, or even when 10% of them are false positives, you lose that trust. And once you lose that trust, they, they will start ignoring you. And again, if you try to automate security, it has to be accurate. You cannot just assign tickets to developers, which turns out to be false positives. So that's like the biggest key piece of all problems. Once that's been solved, and that's what we are solving with scale, you can automate it. You can hook it up to your CI. You can hook it up to your backtracking environment. You can hook it up to any other notification uh, integration point and immediately start working on it. And after you set up like scheduled scans, imagine that you are sleeping as you're, you know, you're a security team manager and you are sleeping, one of the scheduled scans kicked off, finds a vulnerability, creates a ticket for a developer in the other side of the world. They, it's during their work day, so they pick it up, they fix it, they deploy it, system retest the vulnerability, proves that the deployment is correct and the vulnerability is fixed. And when you wake up, you look at your results and you see one of your, uh, one of the websites reported a vulnerability and already fixed by the time you wake up. And you couldn't have done that because you can only do that if you can trust the automation. And we don't have no trust in any of our security automation. That's the biggest problem we are facing today. You know, we got the problem of web application firewalls um, being on the other side of the spectrum. Like they don't want to get false positives, so they're like, you know, along with everything, because false policies in web application firewalls is a big deal, you know, block legitimate users. And on the other side, we got static tools and et cetera, and other dynamic tools suffering a lot from false positives. So when I talk with the, some prospects, like they are say, saying me, oh, does dynamic scanning work? Like all I'm getting is false positives. So we are kind of having this problem, like trying to prove the customer, look, we are not that. Like, we got this feature, it solves that problem. So now you can trust your tool again. And I think as an industry, that's what we should be doing. Like, rather than just selling a snake oil or just saying, oh, we solve everything, we just need to come forward. Look, we solve this. We don't solve this. Be very clear about it. And always focus on can customer get value without spending half of their life on this tool to configure or review the results. And once we get there, I think then we can expect enterprises to say, okay, you know, this solution works. Before that, it's kind of works, maybe works, but you know, you don't get that full adoption. Yeah, it is interesting how sensitive developers are to false positives. Um, they have a very low tolerance <laughs> and they will immediately distrust a source if there are false positives. They're I, like I, a fickle bunch. I think, but I think some of that came out of management budget too, because it was it was an issue of you go to people and you say, "Here's a problem you need to fix." Management doesn't understand the difference in a small problem, a big problem, a complicated problem, and a simple problem. It's just a problem, and so they say, "Well, how much will it cost?" And you say, "Well, it's going to take this many hours, and we're going to do this, we're going to do this, do this, and redo that." And then somebody turns around and says, I don't even think it's really a problem after all. It, it was just a scan that said this might be a problem. And then when those, those passive-aggressive words start sneaking in there, mm -hmm. maybe this could result in yeah. all of a sudden you have management so going, priority when you say goes right could, to yeah. so what's the likelihood? And you go, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just, it could happen right now or it could never happen. And they're like, okay, we'll put that on, say, lowest possible mm -hmm. priority expenditure. Let's move the things that are critical to the top. And then you throw a few false positives in there. Or they read an article later saying, oh, yeah, so this tool always triggers this. And I saw one of those just the other day. I was reviewing, uh, I was reviewing a log of a, of a web uh, a pen test for a company. And they had all kinds of po false positives in there because they had reported on stuff. They didn't know what they were looking at. They're just reading it off a log and going, oh, yeah. I was like, this, this is not right. And yeah. then it just discredits the whole process. Farah, um, we have an article we're talking about in the next segment, uh, but I wanted to ask, get your take on it. It's uh, integration between a static analysis tool and a dynamic analysis tool. This is something that's been in the marketplace for some time. It, it, do you still find that and see that there's value uh, in combining your static analysis with your dynamic analysis? I think there is value, but I think it's less than what people actually perceive it. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the whole purpose of combining dynamic and static is so you can pinpoint the exact vulnerability point, which is smart 
right? So there are a couple of things. One thing is pinpointing the vulnerability in the source code, right? Which is good. It's not a big deal generally. In, in, in practice, you got a couple of scenarios. If it's a legacy application, it can be very useful because developer can spend a little bit time to track it down. But if it's an actively deployed, you know, developed application, then what's going to happen when you send it to developer, they know what to look at. You know, you already give them the parameter, you already gave them to page and everything. They kind of know what, what to look for. So it should be generally obvious. Um, that's the experience. Having said that, there's another <coughs> valuable aspect of it, which is static can feed into dynamic, right? It's one of those things, in theory, it's very useful. In practice, when we see in the market, when we see in some examples, um, I don't think it's reached there yet. So I think we will see it eventually. It has to go there. And, in, and the static tool can effectively feed dynamic tools about what they're supposed to crawl, what they're supposed to test, what they're supposed to check. And the good thing about it, this can actually expose hidden parameters to dynamic tools. I mean, keep in mind, a dynamic scanner will not find a hidden parameters, something like ABC admin equals true. Um, so that query string will not be revealed by dynamic because it's only in the source code and it's like a, a developer backdoor and then equals to true. So in theory, you can find it in brute force, but in dynamic, you're not going to brute force that much. So static can feed that back into dynamic, uh, but so far, I haven't seen really good examples of that integration. So it's one of those things, um, and I will give you a, a perfect another example on this. So dynamic tools, including NetSparker, as some of them, NetSparker, we have that feature, have a feature which means you can create web application firewall rules out of the findings, right? So this is actually pretty cool. You can hot patch vulnerabilities on the flies. However, when we go around and talk with people, and I can say almost like a thousand, um, no one is utilizing it. So when you sell, it's, it's this great idea. In practice, no one actually bothers and no one actually uses it. I feel like dynamic static is one of those things at this point. On paper, it's so good. In practice, it doesn't really provide that much value. But I think it's going to get there. And maybe there are some new developments that I, I might have missed, considering you know I don't do static and don't have you know a really depth of expertise in that subject. Uh, so there might be more improvements in there. But what I've seen so far and in the last couple of years or the last decade, to be honest, um, there isn't much yet. Can, can, do, you th do you think that dynamic can also feed static then? So if, if I use a tool like, like NetSparker that is looking at my sort of Wild West environment and that's sort of dynamic analysis, if I can use those dynamic findings to then build better static platforms as my baseline, I can keep expanding my static to just say, I mean, I mean do you think that that's, that's a viable approach? I mean, that's, that's something I've always thought about trying to do. I think biggest advantage from dynamic point of view in that integration, dynamic can actually validate findings of static. I think in terms of coverage, like crawling coverage, dynamic will be always behind of static, as long as static can pass routing on websites successfully, which is which is a challenge. And I've seen so many static, you know, static analyzers failing that in different frameworks. So you have to manually configure. So that's something definitely dynamic can feedback. Uh, but I think bigger opportunity from dynamic to static, static can send a vulnerable to dynamic. Okay, you know, I believe there is a cross-site scripting in here. And static won't be able to prove that cross-site scripting. But dynamic can actually prove that cross-site scripting exists, that SQL injection exists, or whatever the vulnerability is. So static will prove something like, oh, it looks like there's a local file inclusion because, I don't know, I've seen an open command and it doesn't seem to be filtered well. But it doesn't really know those false positive rates are quite high. But dynamic can actually open that look, you know, uh, attack to that parameter, see if it's actually exposed to black box scanners, see if it's actually exposed to attackers or, or not, like that API is reachable. Mm. And once it's reachable, it can actually execute, you know, exploit and get the results and confirm, look, you know, static, you found 10 vulnerabilities and five of them are actually exploitable. And, you know, these are the exploit results. When, when I was working in vulnerability management, the question would always come up like, 
So if I know I'm using this software that's vulnerable, like it's not something I wrote in the code, but I'm using a vulnerable library or some kind of vulnerable component that's an off-the-shelf or open-source component. Farah, do you uh, detect that in the dynamic analysis or is that better off being detected in the like build and deployment process or is it some combination of the two? I think combination gives you the best of the both worlds. So in dynamic, we do detect it, right? But there's a limitation. If the library is never exposed to outside worlds and in modern web development, there are plenty of libraries like that, mm. uh, then no, you know, it, it won't be detected. But if the library is something like a JavaScript or something that can be identified externally, let's say WordPress, then yes, it will be detected. But what is interesting in that, from static point of view, there is another challenge. So majority of the static uh, version, I think they call it like right now software composition softwares, right? What mm -hmm. they do, they uh, scan all of your libraries, linked libraries, third-party components, and based on a database of hashes and a bunch of other things, they will give you the reports, which is very nice. But the problem is, if the libraries are modified or forked, they won't be able to detect it. Very bad. A dynamic, for example, NetSpark, we actually dynamically execute stuff. So even if it's modified, but giving you the same behavior, because you know it's still vulnerable, despite of the whole signature is changed, it's modified, it's forked, whatever. NetSpark and dynamic scanner, a good dynamic scanner with that feature, will identify it where bad static will miss. But on the other hand, NetSparker and dynamic scanners will miss some libraries that never been exposed to outside world, uh, like, you know, black box manner, when you externally look at it, it's, it doesn't look like that, but they're vulnerable components. Like let's say a crypto library that you are using, right. apparently using a weak crypto in, at one point, a dynamic scanner is not able to detect that. Uh, but a static based on the signature or library, library you know, uh, database, they will actually detect that very successfully and accurately, unless it's modified. <laughs> right, right, yeah. All I mean, these problems the in code. The minute you tweak an API, I mean, all those hashes change, and then it's just an unknown. So statics never pick that stuff up at all. Yeah. For, I, I want to go back to performance uh, for a moment, because we've kind of set the stage of there's thousands of web applications and believe me i'm right there with you right i consult with a lot of enterprises that their initial lead-in problem is i've got web applications by the way i've got over a thousand or around a thousand i can only my team can only secure so many so when you're looking at a thousand applications and that automated process where you're finding a flaw validating it and then sending a developer to fix Performance is critical in, in that in that process. How, how do you, like? What are some of the things that you do to maintain that performance and increase that performance over time? I mean, improving performance is an ongoing challenge in web application security, right? You got to crawl right. You shouldn't crawl more than you need, but also you shouldn't crawl less than you need. So it's a very hard challenge, and it's an ongoing thing for us. But to be honest, when it comes to one thousand websites. Performance is not an issue because with the cloud computing, and that's the biggest game changer for us in the last decade, to be honest, right? But, you know, I've started this in 2009 with NetSparker. And since 2009, uh, web application is, is computing incentive. Uh, scanning is computing incentive. So you need time, you need CPU resources, you need, you know, a bunch of other things. So the performance, we always try to make it better. But once we move to cloud for scalability, now you don't really care. Imagine you got 1,000 websites. One website can be scanned eight hours or let's say 12 hours. To be honest, you don't care because you scan 1,000 websites at the very same time. Right. So if you are finishing that scan in 12 hours, that means you are getting the results out of 1,000 websites in 12 hours. You know, nothing almost changed for you. I mean, there is no difference between getting 1,000 results in eight hours versus 12 hours. So this is only possible, obviously, from cloud computing point of view. And today, cloud computing is so cheap. It, it just doesn't matter. You don't care about that performance as you used to if you are scanning in scale. Have you researched uh, putting some kind of agent or, or hook in? There are different categories of this space where companies are, have that strategy 
we can, t you know, there's an alphabet soup of RASP and DAST and IAST and all that stuff, right? Uh, and, and even newer technologies that really kind of just hook the application and then are able to gain some insights. Uh, have you experimented with that in the light of dynamic testing? And in like why or why not is that, uh, you know, a feature inside the product? We, we definitely looked into it, but there are, there are a couple of things. Um, so the biggest problem is with that, you need to actually install it, right? And now you're talking about 1,000 applications, API services, microservices deployed in AWS, Heroku, Azure, you know, third-party libraries, outsourcing companies providing to websites. So all of that, how are you going to go ahead and deploy 1,000 applications into 10 different platforms? and ensure that it will work stable, it won't impact the performance, it won't have security vulnerabilities by itself because it needs to see so many stuff and needs to be installed on servers. That imagine the challenge of the effective operations teams that need to go around, collect all these credentials and get them done. So there is value in that, not for scalability sense, not for securing enterprise, that is good if you have mission critical websites and if they are fairly on the similar platforms, you can add that and it will give you a boost kind of, right? And originally, um, companies started to provide them mostly to address false positive problem, right? Because no one solved the false positive problem mm -hmm. and they're like, okay, what's the next step? How do you solve this next false positive problem? And they did and they say, okay, install this to your you know, server and then we will actually watch the APIs. And there's advantages, they can, catch some vulnerabilities, you know, that Dynamic might have missed. Uh, but today, with our solution, for example, uh, we already solved the false positive problem with exploiting, and that's what you do as a black box, black box pen testers. And when I have this kind of discussions, I always say, look, I'm coming from a personally black box pen testing culture. Uh, I see the looking at the source code as cheating. You yeah. know, it's a part of the joke, obviously, you know, you, you get it when you use it and you will utilize the most of it. But if you're a pen testing team, and if you're testing a customer without a source code, which is quite common, then you can still prove a vulnerability exists or not. If the scanner cannot do it, that's scanner's problem. It's not a technological limitation. It can be done, we are doing it. And solving that by, imagine you're a pen testing company, you're testing one of your customers, and then you send them an email. Oh, could you send me the source code of this file? Because I'm not quite sure if there's a vulnerability. Or could you install this to your server so I'm going to check whether there's a vulnerability in there? So you're not, you know, that's not going to fly. So if you have, let's say, 10, 15 mission critical websites and there's a feasible approach for you, that can be benefits into installing that. But we believe, especially for scalability point of view and the practicality point of view, there's not much value in that. If you want to do it in 10,000 applications, 1,000 applications in a real world uh, organization, it's just not a feasible ap approach. It can be only deployed for 10, 15 mission critical, and that's only the value you're going to get out of it, which, which is not necessarily bad. So many you know, companies still need that, but not for scalability. It just doesn't work in the real world. Yeah, there's always that kind of cluster of mission critical applications. And then when you think about where web applications could live outside of that. I think that what you're saying for is like, you need a dynamic scanner to go reach out to all of those other places because you may first not even know you have web applications out there. Uh, and then as you discover them, there's going to be a percentage that you really just can't hook because it's on an IOT device. It's on a vendor provided. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios. And then there's that core set where you're like, yeah, I can do some extra stuff. Um, but it's also nice if you're going to have a dynamic scanner, have it test everything. And, and there's, a com there's a coming day, which is I call the cascade of, of coding, where apps are going to hook other apps, which are going to hook other apps, which are going to hook other APIs. And, and I think that's going to reach a level of complexity that it's going to be very, very difficult for somebody to sit down and say, here's the design, because all of a sudden you're going to have this piece was pulled in from there, but that piece is pulling those pieces from up here, and those pieces all pull from other places, and suddenly it's not a 1,000 apps. Suddenly it's 10,000 or 100,000, and you don't even know what all of them are. So you're going to have to have some kind of dynamic capability in order to go out and hit all that stuff because there's just no way you could staff for it. I mean, it would take you forever, and you could just never do it. And then it changes tomorrow because somebody on app sub-level 15 
puts an update on there and you don't even know that update happened. It's just you're accessing features of that remotely through m- many tiers of, of code and it's going to be phew, it's mm-hmm. a nightmare. Absolutely. Farah, well, exactly. You ahead. just need to be realistic. Uh, you just need to be realistic when you manage that kind of website, that amount of websites. And when people provide uh, some solutions that on paper works, but it doesn't scale. You know, you go there and you got 1,000 websites and I don't know, half of them is API. Some of them are microservices. As you said, some of them living on like crazy devices like IoT and they keep changing and you got only five people to do all of that. Then you need to just look at yourself and say, okay, you know, what I can do reasonably well in what kind of frame. Then you move your mission critical, separate them out, and your mission critical, yeah, by all means, hire external parties, spend a lot of resources, ensure that they are good. But all of these other 980 applications, you still need a solution for them. And that solution need to scale and need to, you know, give you good results. And that's the realistic aspect of it. And what, what you said about like, um, you know, cascade of applications in real world, I, I, I'm starting to see that for the last two years, especially so often. And with the microservices, I would say the um, re- rise and, and almost that today. Um, there are like so many companies out there. Oh, yeah, we got microservices, which meaning I've got like 150 APIs, which I have no idea what they are doing, kind of. Right. And wait till you try to sell that to upper management and who is still living in a world thinking there's a flow chart that describes this piece of code that we wrote. And yeah, I mean, but there are people like that and it's really tough to talk to them about this scaling and all this problem because that's why you need a dynamic application because they really just think you can sit down and go, you mean you're telling me we have lines of code that haven't been personally reviewed by you and signed off on each line with initials? And it's like, Mm. yes, there's... I don't know, this may be running on a thermostat somewhere that we have no idea how it was coded. And it's, it's really scary to a lot of people as they try to start comprehending that. Farah, um, since we talked about IoT a little bit, um, what are some of the challenges in scanning IoT devices and what, what are some things that you've done over the past couple of years to uh, allow people to scan these uh, IoT devices, which are now spread about all of the enterprises that are, <laughs> exist today? It's actually, we got uh, Sven, who was on the show mm. uh, before. So one of our researchers, Sven, spent quite a little bit time, spent quite a bit time actually on IoT devices, right? Um, in terms of scaling, the biggest challenge, and this is going to sound awkward, uh, the biggest challenge is majority of IoT is written like by non-web developers. Yeah, that's that's like the biggest challenge. They are written in a so ridiculous languages or in like completely out of ordinary manners. They just don't make sense. Mm. So from, <laughs> a true. Dy- from a dynamic scanning point of view, they don't make sense because they don't even use the queries that normal application would have used. So like yeah. they don't respect any standards or anything because the server is just some C++ or Python embedded something. And server doesn't make sense. Uh, their language doesn't make sense. We have seen stuff like Lua scripting uh, in web applications, which is apparently been done, but I've never seen in production before, before I, I was looking at that IoT. So that's the biggest challenge. Other than that, if you are looking at an IoT uh, written in a like PHP kind of language or very straightforward stack that you might see in real-world production applications, it's pretty much the same. Uh, there is another side note on IoT scanning. It's the risk of breaking the device. Or, you know, yeah. you need to have a kind of a backup plan because when you scan, and if you don't do your job well, like exclude certain aspects, because you have so many features in an IoT device. And again, stabilities are generally quite bad. You know, they can go down easily. They can get bricked easily in our experience. So those are the stuff that you need to be really careful about. But other than that, if you're looking at an IoT developed in a common make sense development practices and the language stack, then it will be just like a web application. And we have seen multiple vulnerabilities in IoTs like that just by scanning them with NetSparker. Ferry, you mentioned uh, earlier that you'll be at the RSA conference coming up uh, in April. Um, uh, do you have uh, any announcements to go along with RSA or uh, anything for our listeners that might be attending RSA? No big announcements. 
uh, we will be focusing a lot about NetSpark Cloud, which is an enterprise uh, web application scanning solution. And it's not like just the scanning, it's actually the whole process. We got this four-step process and we switch companies from, I don't know what I'm doing to, I know how my application security works stage. So, you know, it's like, here's the tools and here is the book that you need to follow. Now you can actually take care of those 10,005 applications. Yeah. This is the best practice that we are pioneering majority of it. And also we got so many customers having massive success with it and solve their problem. So we will be talking about that in RSA and I will be there personally as well. I would be happy to if someone comes around, talks about application security challenges, especially in scalability issues, I would love to hear and you know share my experience with application scanning in general, as well as, you know, scalability in an auto-automate scanning thousands of applications. That's awesome. Yeah, I know there's a lot of vendors, well, all, almost all the vendors in security will be at RSA. Yeah. Uh, it's a very crowded uh, venue, but make sure you stop by and, uh, and chat with Nespark. Now, will Sven be at RSA? Uh, he won't, no. No, okay. <laughs> Sven is uh, extreme. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen Sven on, on have, Paul's yeah. extremely talented uh, yes. web application security person. So, uh, But you get some FaceTime with Farah if you're visiting yeah, uh, RSA, which is awesome, uh, and talk about some of these issues and, and how NetSparker can help you. So, Farah, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you. And with that, we will take a short break and come back with the Enterprise Security News. So stay tuned. IT Pro TV, binge-worthy learning for IT teams. Why is it binge-worthy? It's learning presented in an engaging and entertaining talk show format that beats voice over PowerPoint snooze fests. Watch over 3,300 hours of content in their on-demand library, on your desktop, on the go, or in the comfort of your own living room. IT Pro TV is IT training you and your team actually want to watch, which means a better return on your learning investment. Get started with IT Pro TV for teams by visiting itpro.tv forward slash securityweekly and start a seven-day free trial and get 30% off standard or premium IT Pro TV memberships using the code SECWEEKLY30. The greatest threat to businesses today isn't the outsider trying to get in. It's the people you trust, the ones who already have the keys, your employees, your contractors, and privileged users. 60% of online attacks are carried out by insiders. To stop these insider threats, you need to see what users are doing before an incident occurs. Observe it combats insider threats by detecting risk activity, investigating in minutes, effectively responding, and stopping data lost. Give it a test drive at observeit.com forward slash security weekly. Are you overwhelmed by the sheer volume and noise of alerts? Struggling to define priority while searching for context? Wondering why we're still playing telephone while attackers invest in technology to ease their efforts? It's time to make a stand and demand a different approach. Imagine spending your day doing the valuable work you crave. It's possible today with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com forward slash SOAR, that's S-O-A-R, to get more information and make the case for your better approach to security orchestration and automation. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Uh, I just I want to mention IT Pro TV because we just talked about web application security, and that's an area that if you're going to be involved in application security in any aspect, I think is one of those areas that uh, commands that you stay up to speed at a regular basis. And having access to a library like IT Pro allows you to get that updated training. I mean, sure, you can go take a training class and that builds a great foundation for your foundational techniques that can be applied to all these new techniques. But to go learn about all those new techniques, I think IT Pro is a great, yeah. uh, IT Pro TV is a well, great source what I, for that. What I tell people is find a, a good clipping tool. So this is, you know, like, how do you condense radar page down to here's the apps we're dealing with so that you get flags when stuff's happening and then use resources like IT Pro TV, Cyber, whatever whatever you need yeah. to know. Find good repositories of information so you can dive in there and say, I just saw this this morning. It's a problem. I need to learn about it this morning. Yeah. And having resources like that is a great thing to be able to just jump on. There's And there's just so many different style, uh, styles of attack. For example, deserialization bugs they crop up all the time. And mm -hmm. that's a, a good one where you may, I think it was JBoss, 
I, I could be getting them wrong, but I believe JBoss was one that had a deserialization bug. So that's one that you're going to get a flag. Right. Like, oh, I run JBoss. And then you're like, crap, how do deserialization bugs work? Exactly. Like, I think I got it now, right? Because I've, <laughs> and, I've and been around where, long enough and, and beaten it into my head. But if, if even if you've got experience in security, you're, you can benefit from going to somewhere where, and learning about that bug again. Trusted right? source. So that's that's step one. Find, build your trusted source base of things you know to look at so that you don't get sidetracked into a giant web of bizarre videos. Two, you know, find a way to get notified about those things. And then three, get yourself up to speed. But you're going to have to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not something you can just go it's take true. a class. And, and, you know, and again, it's, we were talking earlier about upper management. That's a tough sell. You're saying, you know, I need to go take a class every three weeks. You know, I mean, nobody's going to go for that when you say, oh, yeah, 5,000. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. How do you justify I, that? And, yeah. and so your problem's going to be that you have to learn how to learn. I mean, that's, that's one of the things you've got to do. And having uh, these kind of resources is great. I'm giving another talk. Wow. I got to write. I'm working on writing all these talks. Uh, <laughs> but I'm giving another one in the SE uh, social engineering conference. And one of my spins is, well, it's basically applying what I've learned from Business Security Weekly and, and reading some books about uh, negotiating and sales, but applying that to security. And one of the things you're going to have to do really in any IT position, and I think especially security, is go sell training to your management. Yep. Say, I want to take, one, take time off of work. Two, you're going to have to pay for my travel. And three, pay for my training. Right. So like there's a cost associated with that. You have to justify. I mean, that's a sales thing, right? And it so is. there are... I think they're social engineering tactics um, and you know value-based tactics that you can use to help make your case, which I think a lot of security professionals uh, haven't spent enough time developing in order to go say uh, a lot of sales, like I want to sell training to my manager or I want to sell this new solution or I've done this proof of concept and now I want to take on this new project. Not only I got to sell it to my management, I got to sell it to my team members. On my security team, I got to sell it to my team members outside my security team. So I, there's a lot. That pa Paul's needs to new there. book called How to Con Management and or Use Roofies to Get What You Want. There you go. Is a, will be go. available soon. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, as funny as that is, I think is a great point because no, we kind of, we right. look at it as these like slimy tactics, right? But and what I've learned is that you cannot be so slimy about them. Like there's actually, there's a lot of transparency. Sell, selling isn't inherently slimy. It's all about what you're selling and why. Right. So if you're selling something for a perfectly good reason that makes good sense for your enterprise, I don't see anything slimy about right. that. I mean, you know, using roofies might be a little much, but but at the same time, if that's what it takes, and I'm not suggesting that, but but you know, the, the idea that, that you have to essentially con management into doing things is very commonplace because they don't understand what you're asking for. And a lot of times they're applying weird principles to, to things that are, you know, these very gestalt rules where it's like, oh, well, you know, the accountants all got trained years ago and nothing's changed, you know, but it's like, wait, no, the IRS just changed the rules and they need training and they get training. Why don't we get training? And apps change every day. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. So, and we're going to talk about, I mean, basically our news is about things you might have to go sell to management, right? Yeah. And the first thing is um, Atos is uh, a company with open source solutions around containers, uh, the managed OpenShift, which is Red Hat's container platform right. emerging to create. And this is really where we're seeing Red Hat in their acquisition of CoreOS. Uh, and now this partnership really go to the uh, or approaching the point where if you're an enterprise and you want to run microservices and containers we've got an awesome right. platform that, that we've built for that and this could be something you're selling you may be looking at this going you know what we should really use that and this, you're gonna have to go and sell now you're it. i think it's a great them. and i think it's a really cool thing for the uh industry now you have a big player like red hat uh adopting these technologies and making it available to enterprises with all of that uh, commercial support and being designed for the enterprise with the enterprise needs and problems in mind. But as a side commentary to that, sometimes these are easier sells because the company's providing you with a lot of resources to that's sell it. Point. Yeah. Whereas you may have to go out and sell something that's not so well known, that's not so commercialized. Right. I remember years ago trying to sell people on Red Hat and other open source solutions yeah. and them getting blown out of the water by because Microsoft came in with a truckload of t-shirts and hats and they all walked out when i think we want microsoft and it's like why and they're like what? hat shirt 
Good. I mean, and so it, you may still need those sales skills, even when people commercialize up like this. And it's it's good to see good products being commercialized up because you don't have to work so hard to sell it. But you need those skills. It's a great segue into uh, security orchestration and automation, uh, mm-hmm. which you heard in our, our advertisement from ServiceNow. We've got a webcast with them tomorrow. They're a large company. Obviously, they're the global, one of the leaders in that uh, IT management uh, platform, right? And they've uh, developed products for security automation and orchestration. And there are a lot, there were a lot of smaller players in this space. (laughs) Not anymore. Uh, Command was one they got bought by Rapid7. And uh, Phantom Cyber was a big player uh, in this market. And I think that everyone likes to think, oh, we're not going to get you know, bought, we're going to try and do this on our own. And that's a noble effort. But as we see some uh, consolidation in a lot of different spaces in security, this is certainly one of them because the, the software is just too useful to not, I think, glom on to something big. So Splunk has bought Phantom Cyber for 350 million. And I don't know if this is a good or bad thing as it from a practitioner standpoint, acquisitions can go a number of different ways. Um, so uh, Rapid7, of course, with command, and I liked the command technology, yeah. um, and we'll be having more discussions with Rapid7, who's also a sponsor of the show. Uh, and now Splunk has, and I think this makes sense to have a SIM vendor acquire that yes. orchestration automation, because I think it's really solving some of those problems where you dump a SIM in and you're like, wow, I can't get anything useful out of this. But if you can automate and orchestrate some of those processes around your SIM, that makes sense. Now these are going to be integrated uh, more tightly. I think that's a good thing. Now, the other interesting uh, announcement is some new features from another company called Demisto, which does the same thing. They've updated their interface and uh, increased their uh, metrics and efficiency and things like that. Uh, you, you can read all the marketing. I don't know exactly what it means because it's all marketing fluff, but uh, people talk very highly about Demisto and, uh, they haven't gotten bought yet. So well, <laughs> I don't know what that means for you, you know, if you're shopping, but certainly if you've got ServiceNow and you've got Splunk, now you've got some <coughs> awesome uh, automation tools. Yeah, automation tools that, that you will integrate with your platform. Right. Um, you know, if you don't have those tools and you're searching for something else, Demisto can be an option. So it's interesting how that space played out uh, in enterprise security. Uh, a lot of consolidation. Who knows? Maybe it'll all be consolidated. I don't know. I that seems to be the modern way is just, you know, things consolidate quickly because it's, it's easier to go out and buy a good product that's already sort of been vetted in the marketplace. Well, here's, here's what I think happens. I and mean, we saw this with UEBA. Um, we saw companies that did UEBA and user, EUBA and user behavior analytics, right? And they, that's what they were doing. And then a lot of those players got bought up. Right. By other by sim by sim vendors, right? They got bought up, and sim vendors offered their own services if they weren't going to buy a company. And the ones that remained that didn't get bought tend to pivot. So they like, yeah, we and if they have to have some some force, like some insights into what's going to happen in the future, and they say, well, now we're going to pivot into something like, yeah, we do this EUBA thing, but now we're doing this other right. thing too. And they tend to pivot. And that's where I see these different categories and spaces going. I think it's going to be the same thing for security orchestration automation. Yep. Certain players are just going to get gobbled up. The other players that are left in order to compete are going to have to branch out. If not pivot, not necessarily pivot into something completely different, but branch out, like you said, Doug. They're yeah. going to have to expand. I mean, that's that's pretty typical in all these industries is that if you're left, so you're the only only free-swimming creature left in the pool, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to evolve and do something different because there's a reason you got left. And, and you know, the, the, so the feeding frenzy starts and everybody snaps up all the best morsels and right. then there's some not-so-tasty morsels left maybe. And that may be telling you something like maybe it's time to, you know, do something, improve, change, enhance. Right. And, and now you're a little bit behind the market if you got left there because... But see, I think the the good ones, the ones that have good technology coupled with a good business and sales and marketing practice 
they're able to go out and get some more funding oh, to fund that research and development to add on more features absolutely. to stand on themselves, if which, which quali- I think is great. If, if you it, yeah. are quality, you can do that without yeah. a doubt. And sometimes people don't get snapped up for other reasons, not because you're bad. Sometimes you want too much money. Yes. Sometimes you're unreasonable. Sometimes your product's not very adaptable to the needs of the big guys. And I mean, sometimes you are an awesome organization have a great product, great business, and you're just, you're too good in a big player like Cisco is yeah. going to come along and I mean they're just going to make you an offer you can't refuse and buy them out boys right and you, and you get bought out for a high value because you you've got your Absolutely. shit together basically so I agree um another acquisition uh fish me rebrands as co cofence 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 I'm uh, terrible at pronouncing I think it's covefi yeah. I was covefi I think yeah so it does remind me of that I think it's cofence that's uh, what it after is after the word does anyway I'm you know Anyway, they got acquired. <laughs> so if you're a, a fish meat customer, uh, you may want to look into that. Um, what else is in here? Trust, Trustwave is launching a proactive threat hunting service, which I find interesting. They're using the word proactive coupled with threat hunting. And I think threat hunting is a, a little more kind on of, the reactive side because it's after something's already happened. It's after you've gotten breached. So well, I, I guess it could be proactive though. I mean, if you said, okay, we're going to try to envision new threats and go hunt those. Sure. I think... Well, proactive is a little misleading in that uh, we really need to look at the the dwell time, if you will, mm-hmm. which is somewhat of a marketing phrase, but like how long an attacker is going to live inside your network, right. right? And if you're doing threat hunting effectively, what you're doing is you're cutting down on the attacker's dwell time. Yep. I think of the word proactive being about preventative, like preventing that threat from happening. Like in Fishme's case, right? I want to catch right. that before it actually reaches the end user's exactly. inbox before they contract the malware, you're not going to be 100% effective uh, you know, with combating those threats. So you do threat hunting to shrink that, that dwell time. Yep. Uh, so that, that's where I think, and, and Trustwave has a service to do that. Uh, it sounded like they were a little more focused on the endpoint uh, EDR type services to do that. I think threat hunting should be a more uh, kind of cohesive process uh, of course, getting stuff from endpoints is tricky. There's a lot of variables with logs yep. and endpoints. My take on it is the network is a very reliable, probably the most reliable source. Uh, again, I'm biased. I mean, that's what we do at uh, now active countermeasures, which you'll be hearing more about in, in upcoming episodes. But, uh, you know, I think the network is a place to look. But it's still shrinking that dwell time. And speaking of that, CrowdStrike... They say, they call it breakout time. So their new marketing term is breakout time. <laughs> and according to them, it's the time it takes for an attacker to escape. So I, it's different from dwell time. They're saying, and again, it's marketing terms, but it's good to think about it this way. So dwell time is like, once they get in, how long they can stay on that one yep. system. They're saying breakout time is the time it takes for an attacker to escape the initial, they call it the beachhead machine, which I, I hate that as a marketing term. The initial compromise uh, and then go on to compromise something else. Okay. So I call I call that the escalation time. Yeah. I've always sure. called that the time or time to escalation was what I was a TTE was, was I mean, what I was We call it lateral movement too. Yeah, I mean, it's lateral, nothing new, right? It's lateral movement. But it was, it, yeah, it was, and it's an important number. I mean, it's like how th- this was back when you talk about server hardening or endpoint hardening and you start saying, okay, how good is this box? At, how resilient is it? Because when they start escalating, that's when things really go awry. I mean, if they've taken it, it, one box. Yeah. I think it's two things too. Um, this uh, escalation could be they're escalating privileges. Oh, yeah, it can be a whole bunch of things. Right, and it's also escalation of other things they're able to obtain from that. So they're still on that one system, right? but they're able to glean domain admin credentials exactly. from it because those credentials and, and, and a that's very why was, basic that's example. That's why I was calling server right? hardening. Mimi cats, I've you know, got domain credentials because they were cached right. on the system. Uh, which is morphed into a lot uh, more complex uh, and interesting style of attacks. But at the basic level, right, I escalate my local privileges, I can escalate my domain privileges, and I haven't left that one box Absolutely. because that stuff is just as soon is, as it's just To there. me, that was that, that point where it escalates. So yeah. it's like, okay, I logged into an anonymous account through FTP. Okay, cool. Right. Big deal. 
but then the moment I can go beyond that, I get a root shell or I yeah. get I get access to shadow file or whatever I get access to, I have now escalated my attack and the likelihood that attack's gonna become more of a problem. Right. Then you start jumping machines once yeah. you've done that. Then as soon as I get a set of credentials, I can say, now let me see if I can log into this other machine over here and all of a sudden- And then things get really bad. <laughs> really, really bad, really fast. Yeah. Especially if you have vague trusts where we believe this server's safe because you know nobody can log into it remotely, but they can log into it from the server. They just compromised, and I've seen that a bunch of times where they did right. that kind of stuff. And you're, they're like, "Well, how do they get in?" And it's like, "We're well, firewalls protecting us." And it's like, "Well, yeah, but it's not protecting you from your own stuff." Yeah. Uh, this article from Radware is very marketing. There's a ton of marketing speaking here that Yay. we normally kind of poke fun at a little bit because we can't. <laughs> And the frustrating part is that Radware could have a really great solution, but it just it doesn't come through because they're using terms. Well, they say neutralize evasive zero-day <laughs> malware threats with cloud malware protection service. And, and just alt fiduciary harm. Yeah, it's like, come on now. Synergistic. Like, tell us, just tell us what you, what you do. I, and, I, and I was talking with, with someone uh, who was an analyst, actually, and I, I think brought up a great point that I'm trying to integrate into my uh, evaluation of vendors, right? And it's one thing, I mean, we talk about like the problem, the solution, uh, measuring it in those things that Michael St. Archangelo talks about in, you know, a straight truck program that we use here as well. But one of the things that's interesting is putting context around it for people in the security community at first, like upfront, like, okay, I understand the problem. But before you start talking about the solution, which we understand could be a lot of things, tell us, like, is it an appliance? Is it a, <laughs> an agent? Is it a, a log source? Is it like, like what is it's it? It's a cloud-based distributed API that's absolutely yeah, secure. Right. And that doesn't help us. Like, so we're like, what, so how does that, how does that right. work? So like draw the building, like what are the building blocks we're working with? Give us that context, then talk about what you know, what the solutions are built on top of that, which could be a little more theoretical at that point, which is yeah. okay. But I think the problem is we kind of jump right to the theoretical. And in a lot of companies skip the problem statement altogether. They, and I think this is a common problem in a theme we see in our industry is those theoretical solutions and theories are what they lead in with. And that's exactly, <laughs> and I hate to pick on Radware because, like I said, they could have a great solution. I'm not, I'm, yeah. not, you know, I'm not singling them out. But their headline sucks. <laughs> yeah, and whatever. But so, you know, evasive zero-day malware, like, that's what? a very theoretical <laughs> thing. And even, like, cloud malware protection service, like, that's a real theory. Like, but what it, is that? But it is sounds that? scary. <laughs> evasive zero-day malware. Lead in with what? what exactly... The architecture looks like first. That would be nice. Then talk about, okay, how do you protect? Like, oh, zero-day malware is a real marketing thing. Like, how do you help us with, with malware? Sounds all That's sexy. It does. So, what else we got? Uh, oh, static analysis. So, this is interesting, going back to our, our conversation yeah. with Farah, and it's one of the reasons why I asked this question. Uh, again, Gramatech is saying that a groundbreaking new capability is connecting static analysis with dynamic analysis. I, the, really stretching it in your uh, marketing and PR efforts by calling that integration groundbreaking, as Farrah pointed out, oh, yeah. something we've talked about and actually done for some time. In fact, if you go to the big players, IBM, HP, I mean, they have all those tools branded and linked together already, and they've been working on that for some time. So it's... Nothing. Again, that's we that's, talked about how it's useful and in ways to use it effectively, which I thought was great. That's but mar marketing differentiation 101. Calling it like, groundbreaking you know, is not no, but you got to call it that and say this is how we set ourselves apart and why you should pay us instead of them because right, we're right. groundbreaking and they're not. And yeah, I mean, people have been doing this stuff for years, and I mean. I, I was I was talking. We were talking earlier about you know I was talking about taking dynamics and creating new statics and all this. I mean, mm -hmm. we were doing that when you could do it. You had to do it all manually. I mean, I mean there was no no big deal about that. So I don't know that it's groundbreaking. It's good right. to see people doing it, but it, that doesn't I make realize it. that they're trying to make that differentiator right. But that differentiator has to be thought of 
differently. It, it, just slapping a groundbreaking new capability phrase in front of things doesn't make it a differentiator. And it, it's interesting because it doesn't even need to be unique. It just needs to be the one thing that you picked that you're going to run with to be your differentiator. And sure, there might be other people that even do try to do it that way, but you do it the best in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's new book, Differentiating the Differentiators, right. will be out soon. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You have to. You have to do <laughs> you that. Have to. Differentiate Absolutely. the differentiators. Uh, and Sean D'Souza uh, did a two-part interview with us, the author of The Brain Audit, yeah. uh, and talks about that. And the, the best example that he gives is the hotel. And hotels provide the same service to everyone <laughs> at a fundamental level, right? Exactly. You pay them money and you get to sleep there, right? right. Like, that's what a hotel does. But they chose, and you can pick a lot of different differentiators. Exactly. And they picked, you're going to sleep great at our hotel. And so you get your choice of 14 different pillows. You get a sleep consultant. Their rooms start on the seventh floor, so they're furthest away from things. There's essential oil diffusers in the room. I mean, they went all out and went like like above and beyond to say you're going to sleep better at our hotel, and that's their differentiator. Now, other hotels may claim you're going to get a great night's rest, but... But our they, sheets cost by the hour. <laughs> yeah, but they picked that one thing and went with that. And and I, I and I think in, when we talk about insecurity, we need to start identifying companies that do that and coaching companies to to choose those kind of paths because our as we've seen you know mentioned RSA, there's going to be thousands of vendors there. Right. Uh, what's your differentiator? What makes you like, special? Yeah, like what's special about your hotel? But like, we also what, what we also pick? have to be careful to not put too much of our side into the other side because they're also marketing not just to us anymore. That's so true. so there was a yeah. time when this was a very specialized field and it still is, but all of a sudden there's all these other people out there that want in mm-hmm. that don't necessarily want to be in, into the field as much as they need to understand it because they're CIO level people, they're right. CEO level people who are making high dollar decisions for how that company is going to adopt or differentiate themselves and so now it's differentiating the differentiated differentiators and yeah figure that one out but i mean the point is is that at some point they also are marketing to other people so we get a lot of that sort of crosstalk stuff and it, it does make things confusing for everybody involved because we want to see the the nitty-gritty other people need to see sure. the evasive zero-day malware genetic synergy clouds that are coming over the horizon because that's their speak and so marketing is trying to play both sides of the fence so it, it does make things complicated <laughs> absolutely well that rounds out the enterprise security news for this week and the show for today doug thank you very much uh thanks to Farah from NetSparker. that concludes this edition of enterprise security weekly thank you for listening and watching we'll see you next time